possibly the biggest news in the history of minor league baseball broke this week. We'll talk to the guy who broke it in a moment. It's Friday, March 31st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. Late Wednesday evening, Evan Jellick of The Athletic and Jeff Passan of ESPN broke the news that the MLB Players Association is approaching a deal with Major League Baseball on the first ever collective bargaining agreement for minor leaguers. This deal is not 100% done, but it looks like it's going to happen. Joining me now is Athletic senior writer Evan Jellick. Welcome, Evan. Hello, Owen. So thanks for joining. So give us, give us the deal here. What is in this deal? I mean, I guess the biggest... Part, would you say, is the salary increases for minor leaguers, or what's the big story for you? Yeah, I think most people are going to focus, and probably the players are going to focus on the salary increases. If you look at it, basically every level you're jumping up about $15,000, $16,000, and that's really big money when you're talking about complex league and rookie ball players who previously would make $4,800 in a year. Now they're going to make $19,800. At AAA, the minimum used to be 17500 Now that's up to 35800 it, Look, it's not eye-popping money um, in the larger scheme of things, but compared to what the players had before, it's, it's a big difference. And there's a lot of other little details in here. A lot of them we frankly don't have just yet. I think they'll come out in the coming days, and particularly once the deal gets ratified, and it's fully expected to be ratified. But... Uh, you know, the players now have a grievance process. Uh, they have the opportunity to go to an independent um, arbitrator, which they didn't have before in, in most instances, not every instance, but most instances. Yeah, I think the most eye-popping part of this for a lot of people is going to be what minor leaguers were making. Like AAA players who are, you know, supposedly one step from MLB are making, you know, what the cashier at your local grocery store was making. Um, and and often with with fewer benefits, you know, MLB has reluctantly started adding benefits for minor leaguers. But it's really, I think, the MLB players and the Players Association really putting their weight behind minor leaguers that started this whole process because they weren't really doing that either for a long time. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Where do, where do you say the process started? You know, before. Uh, the MLBPA took up this cause publicly, which was late last year. They were already doing groundwork for some time. But there was also that nonprofit advocates for minor leaguers. You know, when the public temperature seemed to change really is when advocates for minor leaguers started up. And that was back, I believe, going into 2020. And you had Garrett Brocious, Brushhouse Brush is actually how he pronounces it, um, who is one of the lawyers in the Sene case, the $185 million lawsuit that was settled with Major League Baseball over back pay and wage claims that was filed in 2014. So Brushhouse was a lawyer involved with that case, but also was a co-founder of Advocates for Minor Leaguers. He hired Harry Marino. Harry Marino ends up going over to the MLBPA. So this has been building for a long time, but it's kind of moved very quickly at the end. And yes, when it comes to housing, the pressure that people like Advocates for Minor Leaguers we're starting to put on the league in recent years had already started to create some change. And now, obviously, when you have a collective bargaining agreement in place, the players now have some actual formal input. They have some formal control, which is something they just never had before. And now minor leaguers have a grievance process um, along with a you know, slew of other policies. What's the significance of that? The ability to have an 
a neutral party adjudicate whatever the dispute might be is something that's particularly valuable as opposed to having the commissioner or, or somebody on management side handle the matter. And, and, I, and I think that's historically been a big thing. You know, if, you, if you go back through baseball history, um, you know, Marvin Miller fighting for neutral arbitrators, it, 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 it's something that historically has been very important, not just for baseball players. I, I think for, for anybody in any setting uh, to not have judge and jury, and at least in every case, be the boss. It, it, somebody else can weigh a situation. And just to hammer that out, you can imagine a situation where like a 19-year-old kid making $10,000 a year who could be out of baseball in a moment's notice if you know one thing goes wrong. So MLB did get a little something here. Obviously, the, the benefits are largely going to the players as they should when you look at their the conditions they had previously. But what does MLB get out of this deal? They, they're getting a larger bill. Uh, the salary inc- increases are estimated to be somewhere around $90 million. And, and if you start to add in benefits and other elements of it, it's possible, you know, that the math is hard, very hard for the public to do, um, that you, you could end up eclipsing about $100 million annually. But, you know, roughly $90 million in the first year, it's a lot of money MLB is going to have to foot here. And it's kind of striking well that that money <laughs> was available. Um, but one of the things MLB pushed hard for in bargaining was the right to reduce the maximum amount of players allowed on what's called the domestic reserve list. So basically the number of minor league roster spots, but you know, the caveat there is that there are minor league teams that MLB agreed actually in this deal that they would not contract during uh, the term of the CBA. They weren't likely to contract anyway, because they have these individual agreements with, with every minor league team that extends beyond the length of the CBA, but previously, or, or I guess still currently technically, MLB uh, had a maximum of 180 players in season on the domestic re- reserve list and 190 in the offseason, and now they have the ability, starting in 2024, they can't do it for a year, but starting in 2024, they can drop it down to 165 in season and 175 in the offseason. So, yeah, it's the ability ultimately for MLB to potentially reduce some number of jobs, but um, the, the league wanted a blanket right to kind of make that decision on its own, and, and the, the union would not allow that, but they did give ground on allowing the league some leeway to make some cuts. And I also think the um, the clause about not contracting teams, even though it's very unlikely that it would have happened over the course of this five-year deal, um, it's significant because now for the next deal, if MLB is thinking of contracting teams, and they did contract 40 a, a couple of years ago um, from 160 to 120, uh, now they would have to take that language out, which would probably be a very heavy lift and they'd probably have to give quite a lot. And, you know, the MLBPA could probably just dig in their heels on that. And just to zoom out here from all the details, it feels like this deal moves us from a mindset of, there's a whole bunch of you minor leaguers. Some of you are going to rise to the top and make millions of dollars. The rest of you, it's a very sink or swim situation. And most of you are going to sink and, you know, be whatever, 24 years old and having not made very much money and, you know, good luck. Uh, to, you know, you're our employees. We're going to pay you enough to at least live. We're going to give you housing. We're going to give you food. Hopefully this will, um, you know, help things like 
the diversity of the league to uh, have a uh, to take care of minor leaguers and make it so they don't have to foot their own bill for for so much of this. It's hugely significant. Yeah, I, I think it is still very much ultimately sink or swim. But you, you, you use the term, you know, livable. I, I think that's the idea. Is it that, you know, you put the housing policy together, you put the increase in salaries together. Presumably, hopefully, you know, players are not um, in kind of absurd binds that they were finding themselves in, right? These sleeping arrangements that they were in. Um, you hear stories about people pooling together money to go buy really basic staple foods at Walmart or whatever and, you know, living off that for a week. It it, um, it brings, I think, a, a level of decency and dignity that should have been in place a long time ago. I think most people would, would look at it that way. And, uh, yeah, it's it's overdue. It's, it's significant. It's overdue. You know, these salaries are still not going to be transformative in the longer scheme of these people's lives but they they will help them keep the players afloat and do you think there will be any kind of broad stroke changes that we're going to see in in baseball long term well you know it's interesting you you never know what doesn't happen but you know with the benefit of some time you, you could end up hearing some stories from players who maybe stick with the sport who might have otherwise walked away because it, it just was not feasible for them. And I imagine at some point we will have some stories like that of, of guy, you know what? I was about to quit because I, I just couldn't do it. I was going to have to go work a construction job or whatever else. And, you know, maybe now that they're able to stick around the, the question of contraction and, and you were alluding to it earlier, you know, what does happen in the next CBA? Does MLB want that clause removed or modified Would the players allow that? You know, what does the, the the specter of potential contraction down the road still looms as a general topic? You know, the, the, the notion that MLB is now totally set and uh, doesn't have any uh, eye on reducing the number of paid employees and teams that they have going forward. I, I don't think we're at that point, but the, the players have some some peace of mind here. So. What does minor league baseball look like in 10 years? I think it's still very much an open question. Evangelic, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Owen. We'll have more news for you after this quick break. Here's what's trending now. You can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. Everything they need to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity. Whether your business generates millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, take advantage of this special financing offer of no payments or interest for six months at netsuite.com frontoffice. That's netsuite.com frontoffice. Let's see what else is going on out there. Roman Abramovich, the Russian oligarch who was forced to sell Chelsea by the UK government after Russia invaded Ukraine, secretly funded the takeover of Vitesse Arnhem, a top division club in the Netherlands, and bankrolled it for years, according to reports. This financial arrangement came to light in what are being called the Oligarch Files, a cache of leaked data from a Cyprus-based offshore service provider called Merit Service. 
There are rumblings about this back in 2010, when the club was bought by a group led by former Georgian player Marab Jordania, who is friendly with Abramovich. Throughout the 2010s, Chelsea loaned many players to Vitesse Arnhem. Not sure what happens next year. It's unclear if this arrangement broke laws or rules, or if it was just sketchy without violating any kind of official policy. Jordania no longer owns Vitesse Arnhem, but does own a Maltese club, Valletta FC. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell has said the Bears have to explore a move to Arlington, which is essentially him giving his official blessing to the move. But mostly it just shows that Goodell is trying to break this gently to the people of Chicago. I mean, have to explore? They bought land in Arlington. They're meeting with city officials. The exploring part already happened. Goodell is just basically playing dumb to give the team some cover. And Manchester United is profitable again. The club turned a $7.8 million net profit in Q4 of last year, a big improvement from the $1.7 million loss for the same period in 2021. That's likely to only further embolden the Glazers in holding out for $7 billion in their sale of the team. Now let's turn to tonight's big events. The women's Final Four kicks off tonight in Dallas at 7 p.m. Eastern, with LSU playing Virginia Tech, followed up by South Carolina facing off against Iowa. Let's start with the biggest game of the night. South Carolina is the best defensive team in the country, with the best defensive player in Aaliyah Boston. They haven't lost a game all season, and have only lost two games in the last two years. Many people, including our own Doug Greenberg, think they're on the verge of a college basketball dynasty. Boston will fire. You bet! Aaliyah Boston is ready to punch her ticket. That dynasty will be put to the test against the scoring machine that is Iowa women's basketball. They're scoring the most points across men's and women's Division I basketball and are led by one of the nation's best players in Caitlin Clark. She's a junior out of Des Moines that has averaged 27 points per game over the course of her entire college career. Clark decides to take one up. And Jones just threw her hand. It's going to be a great matchup and interesting to see what wins out, an unstoppable offense or an immovable defense. When two forces like that meet, you find out who lives up to their name. Moving on to the other matchup, we see LSU facing off against Virginia Tech. This is Virginia Tech's first time in the Final Four, but don't discount the Hokies. They are on a 15-game winning streak, and after beating Louisville to win the ACC tournament, who lost to Iowa last weekend in the Elite Eight, Virginia Tech has won every single one of their NCAA tournament games by double digits. That doesn't mean it will be a cakewalk for them. LSU has only lost two games all season, once to the aforementioned South Carolina and to Tennessee, who went on to the SEC tournament championship and made a run to the Sweet 16. Interestingly enough, Virginia Tech is the team that knocked Tennessee out of the tournament, which might not bode well with the LSU Tigers. The winners of tonight's two games will play for the championship on Sunday night. And of course, the men's Final Four is also taking place this weekend in historic fashion, with four-seed UConn, five-seed San Diego State and Miami, and nine-seed FAU, all fighting for a chance to win the big dance. Keep in mind, three of these teams have never even made it to the Final Four before. Of those four, I'm going with San Diego State to win it all. But we'll have to wait until Monday night to find out who the big winner will be. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I'll be off for the next couple of days, but you will be in very good hands with my colleagues. Enjoy all the excitement this weekend. Leave us a rating or a review. We'd really appreciate it, and we'll see you Monday.